This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, all our Torah Anytime uh, viewers, listeners, subscribers. Tonight, we are learning Leiluni Shmat Avram ben Chaim Yehuda, Yechezkel ben Tzila, and Tzila bat Rabbi David. So, we are beginning the you know the series on the destruct the, the the hidden story behind the destruction of the of the second Beit Hamikdash. We spoke about, I think it was two years ago, I think it was 2019 when we spoke about the hidden story of the first Bet HaMikdash. So today we're, the, today we're going to be, start the second uh, destruction of the second Bet HaMikdash. And one of the things that we mentioned when we spoke about it last time, on how important it is to learn this information, the, this, the mourning of the temple is, you know, we're always mourning in it. I don't know how many of you do tikkun, you know, chatzot, how many and many of you are actually in the morning, you know, aspects of the of the temple. But really, we should all be, and we all have, you know, when someone gets married, they break a glass. When someone buys a house, there's a certain part that they leave untouched because of the, you know, zechel achorban, in memory of the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple is something that takes, it involves very, very heavily in our lives. So, the concept of mourning for something when you don't know what that something is or what you're mourning for is very, very difficult. That's why I find these these types of classes is very, very important, very, very imperative. Uh, but with that being said, I was trying to figure out, okay, now, how am I going to go and start, you know, speaking about the destruction of the Second Temple? There's a lot, of, when you're dealing with an historical type of shear, there is, you know, history sort of, one thing follows the next. And you look at your own life of where you have, where you have gotten to where you are. It's because of a series of events that occurred before you to, that you are where you're standing today. So when we're speaking about a specific part of history, we have to figure out, okay, now how much of historical back context do we need to understand where you're, head, where you're holding right now? And I'll give you an example. Think of each and every one of you. Think of your own lives, where you're holding today. And you do a certain, you make a certain decision, a certain big decision. Now, majority of the time that's based off of, of a lot of previous historical things that happened in your own personal life that you came to this decision today. So if I were to ask you, let's say you made a big decision, I don't know who you're going to marry, where you're going to live, uh, what type of job you're going to get, whatever it is, any, any big decision. And I'd be, and I could be like, okay, so why did you choose this? And then your your answer could either be like a one sentence uh, because of X, Y, and Z, or you have to go back to a certain part in history of your history and say, you know what, this happened to me when I was younger, which led me into X, Y, which led me into A, B, and then it led me to G, H, and that's why I'm here where I am today. So when dealing with the um, with the destruction of the second Bet Hamikdash, I was thinking. We can't just start from the Beit Hamikdash because there's so much information that has to come before you even begin to understand the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash. You have to understand the history before it while it was still standing. So I was beginning to prepare, and I was I was going through the you know the, you know the 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 history books and the uh, you know all the literature and all the midrashim and the Gemara that speak about it. And then I was like, every time that I was, I'm like, okay, I'm going to start from here. And then I realized, but wait a minute, but like 50 or 100 years prior to that, it's a very important aspect and we need to do it. And I kept on, like I started with like like a few years right before the, the destruction of the Beit Das, and I kept on going, but like, wait, we need this. And I went another 50 years, and we need this, another 50 years. And, I went another, and before you know it, I'm back to the first temple. So, <laughs> you know, before the destruction. So with that being said, 
We have to, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to start, uh, give a little bit of an overview from the first temple and then lead us way to our, um, to the second Bet HaMikdash. So the, the idea for this class is not really to even speak about, begin to speak about the destruction of the second Bet HaMikdash, but really to speak about the historical, uh, um, like, like context before, while the Bet HaMikdash was standing, of what led to the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. And by the way, this itself might take two classes just to get that aspect, but we'll see as as we go along. So we know the first Bet HaMikdash was built by Shlomo HaMelech, by King Solomon. King Solomon was the son of King David, David HaMelech, and uh, he built the first temple. The first temple lasted a little over 400 years, and then unfortunately it was destroyed. And now we all know that the Jews went into exile after the destruction of the first Bet HaMikdash for 70 years. 70 years was the exile between the first Bet HaMikdash and the second Bet HaMikdash. And sort of the culmination of the 70 years, the end of the 70 years, was where the Purim story happened. So the Purim with, uh, with uh, Mordechai and Esther and Ahasuerus and Haman, all that happened 70 years after, well, sort of came into fruition, came to completion, 70 years after the destruction of the first Bet HaMikdash. Uh, well, it's actually a little bit before 70 years. Uh, uh, three, about three years later, after the Purim story, the construction of the second Bet HaMikdash was uh, begun under the reign of Darius II, and it was under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, of the Jewish, uh, of Jewish leaders. Now, the, now that they had the second Bet HaMikdash, the second temple, this it took about uh, four years, roughly, to build, and it lasted for around 420 years. Now, during this period, the difference between the first Bet HaMikdash and the second Bet HaMikdash was really drastic. And it's not the topic really today. There's, there, was, there was a lot of differences that happened. And, and, and you know, it's not really comparable to what we had in the first Bet HaMikdash to what we had in the second Bet HaMikdash. But we still had a Bet HaMikdash and we still had a lot of amazing, amazing things that were going on because we had the Bet HaMikdash. But during the time of the second Bet HaMikdash, the Jews were not free people. We were not self-ruled, well, the majority of the time. For most of this period, we weren't self-governed by our own thing. We were actually under foreign rule. The, uh, when, the first Bet HaMikdash, when the second Bet HaMikdash was built, it was first under the rule of the Persian Empire. This was, which well, obviously was the Purim story, and this lasted for about 34 years. After that, the Greeks overcame and overtook the Persian Empire. The Greeks, uh, you know, which was run at that point by Alexander the Great, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, conquered the Greek, the, I'm sorry, conquered the Persian Empire, and eventually the Greeks also conquered Israel as well. Israel, the Jewish uh, state, suffered under the Greeks for 180 years. Finally, they were liberated by none other than Achashmonaim. The story, the famed story of Hanukkah. That's when it came afterwards. The famed story of Hanukkah came 180 years after the Greeks took, uh, took over the land of Israel. And uh, the Hashemunim were, were so zealously bound to the love of Torah that they, they drove out any, they, they only had like God in mind. The, this is the miracle of Hanukkah happened. So just so we have a, um, just like a, a brief, like, bird's eye view of it. You had the first Bet HaMikdash, then, Almost 70 years later, you had the, the, the story of Purim. Then you had the second Bet HaMikdash. And then, you know, quite some time later, you had the story of Hanukkah. Now, when, what I really want to start to begin is really dwelling into the reign of the Hashmonaim. But before we get into the, to the reign of the Hashmonaim, because they, they ruled, the Hashmonaim ruled for many, many generations. But before we get into that, the, uh, just as an overview, that the Greeks didn't rule for, uh, you know, that long. After, 
after their period of 180 years, they were overtaken by the Romans. And once the Romans took over, they were also overseeing the Jerusalem, you know, the, the state of Israel. And eventually, about roughly 130 years after that, the second temple was destroyed. So, before we get all the way into that, I want to, I want to go back. I want to start off to speak about by the, by the reign of the Hashmanim. So, sort of like taking start of after the Hanukkah story. So we know that the Hashemim were Kohanim, Matasya was a Kohen. He had a son that was Shimon, and it was, you know, not surprising that he became the high priest. But also, Shimon, the son of, Ma- of, the son of Matasya, he also went and he, and he took himself the title of Nasi. Nasi was a title of a, like a prince or a president or a leader of the Jewish, of the Jewish nation. Now, Shimon did not call himself the king because he knew that a Jewish king could only come from the line of the lineage of David Amelech. And the lineage of David Melech comes from the tribe of Yehuda, and the line of Kohanim, the lineage of Kohanim comes from the tribe of Levi. So he couldn't call himself the king, but for all intents and purposes, he acted, sort of to speak, like a ruler, like a king. The, but he knew the difference of, of that he wasn't a king, and he called himself a Nasi. However, his descendants did not really respect this distinction. They started ruling, uh, it, it was a large dynasty. The, the Hashemunayim dynasty in, in Israel was a very, very, it lasted for 103 years of father to son, you know, ruling. And it started off in a more positive way, but, and it actually went, there was, there was a, you know, they, they expanded territories. But unfortunately, it ended up having terrible moral and religious decline due to that. And, and the, all honesty, they shouldn't have been kings in the first place. And unfortunately, they became corrupted by their own power. The next ruler after Shimon was his son. And his son was named as Yochanan Hyrcanus. He, he was a very powerful leader, but he did something very, very bad. And uh, one of the things that he did is that he wanted to expand the borders of Israel. He wanted to expand Israel. And what he did was is that he expanded and he forcibly converted the newly conquered people. So he expanded the land, he conquered the land, and he, could, he forced the people to convert. Now this is something that Judaism has never done, bef- never done before, and never actually done afterwards, you know, since, that, since this time, because we know that Judaism doesn't push for converts to come in. We actually push converts away. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. Why would you want to convert? But Yochanan over here went, and he wanted the, these people to convert. One of the people that forcibly convert at this time were a group of people known as the, the Edomians. These were, uh, you know, people that, that uh, well, one single person that came out of this that cost the Jews a very, it cost the Jews very, very dearly, let's just say it like that. And I'll give you a spoiler alert that one of the people that came out of this was Herod. Herod was one of the, the kings of the Jewish, um, you know, one of the Jewish kings. And I have to say that if you're well-versed in Jewish history, then this class is going to make so much sense and everything is going to fall right in order and all of a sudden you'll see a bigger picture. If you're not so well-versed in, uh, in Jewish history, this is going to be a more of an introductionary class and you'll, you'll see the, the connection of things, but you won't be able to really appreciate and how, like, how like everything connects to one another. So, Anyways, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to Herod, who was a uh, schizophrenic, terrible, terrible ruler, but accomplished a lot, one of the most famous rulers of, Jude, uh, of, you know, of Judea. But in any case, 
Moving along, the son of Yochanan Herakanos, his name was Alexander Yanai. Alexander Yanai, at this point in time, he is the grandson of Shimon, the grandson of the original five brothers of the original five, five Choshmanim. Now, at this point, he was largely Hellenized. Hellenized means that it became largely influenced by the Greek culture, and it became more, let's use air quotes, modernized by it. And during this time, there were people, that, a group of people known as Tzedukim. Tzedukim, or... What's the English word for it? Sadducees? Sadducees or something along those lines? These are Jews who followed the written law, but they didn't follow the oral law. They said the oral law, this is made up by the rabbis, we're not following it, they made up their own interpretations of it. So you have the Tzedukim, and then you had the Pharisees, or the Prushim. These were the, the, the Pharisees, these were people that follow the mainstream Judaism, the, you know, the Orthodox Judaism. And then you had this breakaway group called the Tzedukim, that they followed only the written law. Meaning that you had the, the Hamishah Chum Shatara, you had the, the written law, the 24 books of, of, that was written down, that they took as the Torah. Everything else, they made their own interpretation from it. So during this time, this is where, um, you, you know, the, the, the king at this time, Yohanan Herkanas, he went and he sided, unfortunately, with the Tzedukim. And even though the, the Perushim, the Pharisees, they opposed him, he had about 800 of them executed. Now, for those that are not familiar with Jewish history, it is very, very unfortunate and difficult to say that the, the problems or the issues or the difficulties that came to the Jewish people, by the Jewish people. That's probably the heart. When I'm reading history and I hear, when you, when you learn history and you see it and how one Jew kills another Jew, that's, I don't know, for, for me it hurts so much more. It's so much more of a sting than when you have foreigners come and they fight against battle and they're the ones that destroy it. But when you have the Jews killing the Jews, oh yeah, how, how terrible, what a heartache that is. It really is difficult. So unfortunately, this, uh, you know, Alexander Yanai, he went and he sided with the Pharisees and people that went, and he sided with the Tzedukim, and the people that opposed him, he went and he had them executed. And not only did he have them executed, he executed their families as well. But it is very, very unfortunate, very sadistic that he made them watch them first slaughter the families, and then he went and he executed them. And during this time also, he made this Greek-style feast. This Alexander Yana, he ruled for 27 years. And, you know, needless to say, he was an enemy of the Talmidei Chachamim, the Torah sages. The, and not only that, his brother-in-law, you know who his, bro, his brother-in-law, Alexander Yana's brother-in-law was not another rabbi, Shimon ben Shetach. A famous, famous sage, you look at the Gemara, it's brought down many times. Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach, he also had to go and, and, and run away because his brother-in-law, the king, was, uh, you know, was after the sages. He, this uh, Alexander Yanai, he died at the age of 50. He did repent before his, uh, before his death, and he recommended that his wife, his wife was a righteous woman, and he recommended that his wife be the queen. And his wife was Shlomitzian, Shlomitzian Alexandria. She ended up becoming king, and she was king from the year uh, 76 to 67 BCE. And during this time, this was sort of like a ray of light, a ray of sunshine to the, you know, in the Jewish history in this, in this period of time. She really did a, a lot of good for the Jewish people. Her brother, Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach, was a leading rabbi at the time. And with the help of another chacham, another sage, by Rabbi Shua ben Gamla, he went and they, they instructed a system where every town, 
of the Jewish town had good schools, had righteous teachers. They sort of had, they made this religious public school system where all the Jewish people would be able to learn and be taught Torah. They also, because of the, there was many wars during this time beforehand, and because of that, there were many widows and orphans. So Rabbi Shem ben Shetach, he went and he, he made sure that all the widows and orphans were properly taken care of. Meaning that at this time, people, at this stage by, by Queen Shlomo Tzion, she, it was a period of like, you know, the Jews felt free, the Jews felt happy. There was a period of where they followed the Torah. Not only that, uh, our sages tell us that rain only fell on Friday evenings. Why on Friday evenings? So that the Jewish workers and the peasants who didn't have enough money and that they need to work day to day and they would work from paycheck to paycheck, they would never lose a day of work. Because it, it was always sunny and it only rained on Friday night. And also not only that, that people that were traveling, no one travels on Shabbat, that's Friday night, so they didn't suffer any discomfort. And furthermore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu went and he blessed the soil. The soil was blessed that the grains of wheat grew large, very large, the olives grew large, the oats, everything was like, the, ama- the, the ground really produced amazing, amazing fruit. And one of the reasons was to teach the future generations a, a very big lesson, that when you listen to God, when you listen to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when you listen to Hashem, the blessings come as a reward for that. The blessing that you live in your life. Because when you listen, you're going to get blessings. Now, the history of the Hashmanim dynasty ended very, very da- disastrously. And that is by, really as, this was really an introduction, bring me to this point. And that is that after the queen passed away, she had two children. One was the name Hyrcanus, and the other was Asterbolus. Both of them were Hellenized. They became involved in the Greek culture, very modernized, very away from the you know traditional way of of the, the Torah. And she, when she died, the question was, who was going to rule? Who was supposed to rule? There were two brothers. You have the Hyrcanus and you have Aristobulus. So the truth of the matter is, is that really none of them should have ruled Israel. They were, you know, more morally corrupt, very power-hungry men. The older one, by the name of Hyrcanus, he was more weaker and gentler than the other brother, Asterbolus, who was more cunning, aggressive, and very ambitious in his desire to rule. So, you would think the more ambitious one would be the one that would end up ruling. But Hyrcanus had a, a strong advisor. And this advisor was the name of, was, had the name of Antipater. He was a descendant of the Edomian converts. Remember we spoke about the converts that were forcibly converted to Judaism? Again, it's questionable, you know, on their Jewish status if they even are Jews because they were forcibly converted. But Antipater was one, a descendant of this, of this group of people. So, and during this time, there was sort of a civil war between the group, that, there was a group of people that supported Asterbolus to be the next king of Israel. And then you had a group of people who su- supported Hyrcanus. You know, you had you know, Team Arcanus and you had Team Aristobulus, and they didn't know who was going to go and who's going to win. Unfortunately, a civil war broke out in the Jewish land of Israel. And uh, during this time, you know, a lot of people, were, they go to the rabbis, they go to the sages. The heads of the sages at this time, the head of the Chachamim, the Pharisees, the Purushim at this time, were none other than Shmaya and Naphtalion. Shmaya and Naphtalion were the ones who were alive at this time. But they, however, did something very interesting. They withdrew from the political debate. They took themselves back. Said, "We're not getting involved in this." 
So during this time, there was a, there was a civil war going on, going, going on. You had Team Astabolus and you had Team Hyrcanus going and fighting against each other. Astabolus at one point engaged his, the Hyrcanus' group, you know, in a, in a sort of, I guess you could call it a war or, you know, engage the forces. And this was outside Yerichai. And Astabolus was victorious. And Hyrcanus, he was a type, he was very, his nature was very, you know, calm, very, not, not, not the aggressive type. So he said, you know what, I lost. So he renounced all claims to the throne. He sort of retired, he says, I'm retiring from public life, I'm going to, uh, you know, enjoy my retirement. However, he had his, uh, you know, assistant, he had his advisor, Antipater. And Antipater went, and he went, and he continued to incite Hyrcanus. He went, and he says, no, we have to go, and we have to fight back. We're able to beat him, we're able to become the rulers of the Jewish nation. And he convinced, uh, you know, Hyrcanus, Antipater went, and he convinced Hyrcanus to go, and to start some sort of secret negotiations with Aritas. Aritas was the king of the Arab tribes. And he was, for the long time, the Arab tribes were the enemies of the Hashemunayim. And uh, for whatever reasons, they decided to sort of team up together. And here, Kanis went and he promised Aritas, he said that he, if you come with me, I'm going to restore the Arab rule to parts of the Transjordan you know, uh, areas. So this Aritas went and he supplied Hyrcanus with a large army. And now Hyrcanus went and he moved against Jerusalem, and he moved against his brother to go to attack his brother, Astabolus. And the, you know, Jerusalem is surrounded by a, by a wall. But Hyrcanus had supporters inside Jerusalem. So his supporters went and opened the city gates for him. So, so Hyrcanus moved in with this Arab army by his side. And they pushed Aristobulus and his army into where none other than the Temple Mount. The area of the Temple Mount where the Bet stood. And because they all went to the Temple Mount, now Hyrcanus went and he made a siege around the Temple Mount. Now if you think about it, this is, where, this is the time where the Temple stood. This is not the time of where you have, you know, unfortunately nowadays we have the Temple and you have the, the, the mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque over there. This is the time where you had the Bet HaMikdash standing over there. And you had two brothers that were fighting against each other of who was going to rule Israel. And each one had a supporting system before, behind them. And the one went and he went and he surrounded the other one where none other than the Bet HaMikdash in the area of the Bet HaMikdash. You know, at, at this point in time, any reconciliation, you know, a brotherly love and just like hug it out was, went out the window. The problem, the atrocities that are committed by each side was beyond repair. Unfortunately, you know, there's no type of fight that's equal to a family fight. There is some sort of bitterness and unforgiving attitude that comes into these, you know, types of fights. And unfortunately, they went, and Hyrcanus was at the stage where he was putting a siege on his brother and his army around the Temple Mount. And the siege continued. And as the siege continued, food supplies didn't well. They declined. The interesting part that came out of this is that the Bet HaMikdash was still stood. So there was daily kobanot, there was daily temple services, sacrifices that were happening every single day. But the problem is, is that the livestock of the temple was, was declining because it was, it was a siege. So at this point you had the one Jewish group putting a siege around another Jewish group and they couldn't able, they weren't able to go and continue the kobanot. However, something very interesting happened. Both saw, you know, like Hakanas who went and he put a siege around Jerusalem, around the, the Temple Mount, their, their group 
were loyal to, you know, the temple service. They were loyal to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They were loyal to God. They wanted the temple service to continue. So they did something very interesting. They put a siege around it, but what they ended up doing is they ended up going and giving them animals to sacrifice. They, they, there, was, there was sort of a pulley system, and they put animals on this sort of like, think of it like an elevator, and the other, the other side pulled the elevator up, and they were able to continue the sacrifice. And this continued. The outside siege went and gave the inside animals that would be able to go and continue the temple sacrifices. The Betamikdash, the, the sacrifice of the Kobanot. Until somebody came over to Hyrkanos and goes over and he says, listen, why are we giving us Shabbos? Why are we giving the people that were stuck inside the Temple Mount, why are we giving them the Kobanot? Maybe the reason of why they're succeeding, listen to this listen to this knowledge and how much they were, even though they were going so against each other, how much they believed in God. It says maybe the reason of why they are going and they're able to succeed in this and able to, to, to extend the siege is because they're doing Kobanot. And if they're doing Kobanot, they're getting heavenly divine you know, powers because of that. Maybe we should stop giving them the animals a sacrifice. And if we stop giving them the animals a sacrifice, then they're not going to be able to go and give the kobanot. If they're not going to be able to give kobanot, they're not going to have that spiritual power behind them. And then we're going to be able to overcome it. So, Hyrcanus goes and he liked that idea. And he did something very, very unfortunate. That instead of putting the kosher animals up in this elevator system that was made to go and to continue the Kobanot, he went and he put a pig on this elevator. And when the pig, the, the, the sages goes and tells us, when the pig touched the walls of the Holy Temple Mount, the land of Israel shook. The degradations of the Hashemarim behavior, this is where it has reached its worst. Because of this, the independent, the, 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 end of the independent Israel was now at hand. It, it was, this, is at, this is already at the end of it. Because of this. Very, very unfortunate situation. But, nonetheless, you still had a siege around. You still had people inside. And they sort of were stuck in a sort of a stalemate. And they didn't know what to do. How long are they going to keep the siege? So they decided to do another unfortunate uh, you know, thing. Another unfortunate event that happened in Jewish history. And they decided to involve the Roman government into the situation. They went, and they went to Pompey. Pompey was a Roman governor, a Roman, I'm sorry, a Roman general. And they decided, listen, since this is where the Jewish state, at this point in time, we're going to soon speak about the Romans and, and where they were holding, but the Romans were a very, very big power at this time. So they didn't know what's going to do. Either, you know, how much can you have the civil war? How much are you going to have the siege? Either Asterbalus is going to be the, the king, or Hyrcanus is going to be the king. We have to have some sort of resolution. So they went, and very, very unfortunate, they went and they invited the Roman government to go and intervene. And the Roman, the Roman government that went and intervened was the Roman general Pompey. He went, and he decided he's going to intervene. So each side, each brother went, and they presented their case to this Roman governor. This Roman general. But each one gave a bribe to this Roman general. However, Aristobulus' bribe was larger. So originally, Pompey wanted to go. And his original decision was, you know what? Let me go with, you know, Aristobulus. He gave me the larger bribe. By the way, he kept both the bribes. <laughs> but, but he gave me the larger bribe. So let me go and give him the, you know, to be the king. However, Hyrcanus had a very, very aggressive advisor. 
And that is, as we said before, Antipater. Antipater, again, was from the Dominions. He came from the forced conversion, conversed uh, people. He went and he appealed to Pompey. And he said, rethink of it. So you know Pompey said, no, let them both come to me. Let Hyrcanus come to me and let Astabas, let them both come to me. They both came and he saw that Hyrcanus was a weak person. He was a very ineffective ruler. And he decided that what he's going to do is he's going to specifically appoint the ineffective weak ruler Hyrcanus over, you know, over Israel. Why? Because this will grant Rome the power to rule over Judea without any war. Now he's going to be able to control, sort of like a puppet, puppet master, over, uh, you know, over Hyrcanus. So Hyrcanus went and he won the, you know, I guess if you call it the debate between, uh, you know, Astabolus and Hyrcanus, you know, by the hands of this uh, Pompey uh, general. And Pompey decided Hyrcanus is going to be the one to lead. Hyrcanus went and he went and he declared himself king. He also declared himself the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. Now, at this point in time in history, this is where the Romans became involved in Israel. Beforehand, the Romans were outside. The Jews were self-controlled, you know, self-involving, self-ruling. Now, the Jewish people went and brought Rome into Israel. Now, let's pause on this story for a second, and let's try to figure out who the Romans you know, were and what were their mindsets. The Romans, our sages, Jewish traditions tell us that the Romans were the descendants of Esav. Esav, the brother of Yaakov, Esav came out, you know, we said red here, red here, very bloodthirsty. And Rome, you know, the sages call Rome what? Edom. Why Edom? Because Edom was also a name given to Esav. Esav because he was red here and he was bloodthirsty. Red, Edom, Adom, and anybody who speaks Hebrew knows that red, Adom, is, is, uh, is red. But also, Edom also comes from Dam, blood. Asaph was very bloodthirsty. Edom, Rome was very bloodthirsty. So the Romans who came from Asaph, who are Edom, they really inherited Asaph's worldview, his, his aspect on, on what the, the important things of, let's say, in the world, in, Roma, in, in the world is. The Romans, if we could say a little bit of their, I can't say it's a positive thing, but it ended up working for their benefits. They were very, very hardworking people. And not only that, they were extremely well organized. Their uh, feats of engineering is looked at today. If anybody travels to a lot of places in Europe, you look at the Rome, the, the, the engineering, they had the aqueducts, they had the roads, they had walls that are still standing till today. They, had, they, were, they were incredible builders. And there's a reason why I'm saying, giving, you know, I shouldn't, you know, I'm not giving praise to Rome, but there's a reason why I bring this, and soon you're going to see why. But they really had tremendous amount of engineering knowledge. You look at them, if anybody has ever gone to Rome, to, to you know, to Italy, to look at the, the, the engineering after that, they were way advanced in their times. But not only they were advanced in engineering, they were also very advanced in the way they waged war. They, they waged war very systematically. With the way they were able to conquer, not only, by the way, they wage war so, you know, systematically, so amazing, they were one of the only powers that remained so for six centuries. They remained in power for a very, very long time. Now what's Rome? Rome is nothing. You know, you hear Rome, you think of the Vatican, you know, I don't know, you go to tour there, or whatever. like, what was Rome nowadays? But back then, they were the world power. The Romans, they revolutionized the warfare. So they, they took over the Greek army of what we said before, the Greek, uh, you know, culture, also the, you know, the Greek world, world power. The difference was between the Greeks and the Rome is that the Rome, they did not draft citizens into the army. 
They had a very, very professional army. And in fact, it's, it's very likely that they were the first professional army. They're soldiers who were paid to fight. It wasn't sort of a, a job that they had. It was a job. But now it was a job. It was a way of life for them. The Roman motto was, Veni, Vidi, and Vici. Meaning, I came, I saw, and I conquered. That was the Roman motto. They were very aggressive people. They made a career of fighting. And they were well-trained, very disciplined, very well-equipped. They, they, they kept the, the, the most highest state-of-the-art military technology, which was, you know, for back then. So they had this huge advantage in battle. And when they battled the Greeks, the Greeks had a very, very large army. But they were just a large army. The Romans, they, they did things more intellectually than, you know, in the brute strength. The Romans, what they did was they had legions, they had sections. They subdivided into, you know, 10 or smaller groups. And each legion, you know, each section had, had like 5,000 men. So they were able to sort of have this flexibility in the battlefield that the Greeks didn't have. And because of that, they were able to destroy, they, they ate up the Greeks. They destroyed the Greeks. And the Romans, with their knowledge and their technology, they were very sophisticated people. But at the same point in time, with their high sophistication, with their high technology, with their high advancement in society, they were very, very brutal people. Perhaps even the most, the historians say they were even the most brutal civilization in history. Look at it, the most advanced and the most brutal at the same time. First of all, you could see it in their warfare. But even more strikingly, is you see it in their entertainment. And you could tell a lot about the person based on the entertainment that they like. What did they enjoy doing? What did they spend their leisure time doing? The Romans had, you know, at this point, about 200 different locations where they had these amphitheaters, these coliseums. Well, what did they do for entertainment? Is that they gathered around, they ate, they drank, they relaxed, but what were they watching? They're watching people getting brutally butchered, murdered, grotesquely devoured by animals. Or by, they put human beings, and unfortunately Jews at that time as well, and they said, okay, fight the lion. Here's a twig, let me see what you're going to be able to do. And sometimes they'll put human beings fight to the death. You know, nowadays, I don't know if I should speak about it, but I guess I will. You have people that they watch these fighting turn- tournaments, these UFCs, where people go and they just kill each other. If this is the way of your entertainment, you have to think twice about yourself, about where you come. If this is what you're entertaining, why people hurting themselves for money? Yes, they're mo- you could tell me 10,000 excuses. This is the way of the Romans. The way of the Romans, you could tell a person why if you enjoy by people physically killing themselves, then you have a problem. You have a big problem. You should not enjoy entertaining yourself by one person hurting another person. Jewish or not Jewish, doesn't matter. You ever, and this is what the Romans, this is how they entertain. But nowadays, you have a referee. Even if you go to the worst, you know, fights, I'm talking about not third world countries, I'm talking about in our society. You have the people going to the UFC or the boxing tournaments. Well, see, so you, you have a referee over there, and the referee goes, and if you punch a person too hard and he falls outside, you're not allowed to keep, go and keep on punching him until he kills him. There's a referee comes, he has at his power, at his disposal, is a very powerful weapon. It's called a whistle. And uh, this, he does, I don't know if he does a whistle, I don't know, I don't watch these things, so I'm assuming there's a whistle. Referees, all I know about referees is they have striped things and they have a whistle. And the whistle, you know, no matter how aggressive you are, you hear the whistle, 
all of a sudden you come this little, you know, little cat to be like, okay, well, what are we supposed to do? You know, like, what are we going to do? Yeah, whether it's hockey, whether whatever it is, the whistle comes out, everyone's a mama, a tatala, everyone's going and a band down. Yeah, yes, yes, tati, what should I do? Yes, mommy, what should I do? What can I do? Anyways, you have over here, even the UFC, they're punching a person out. But he comes over here, you have a referee, it comes in the striped shirt or whatever it is that he's wearing, and he stops and he pushes people apart. Back then in the Roman, there was no referee. You fight to the death. That's it, till you end your life. And you know what? You had men, women, and children watching this and cheering them on and they seeing death. This is the most advanced society at the time. This is what the Jewish people had to contend during the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash. Where you had people that for fun, they watched murder. For fun, they watched people getting brutally hurt. And eventually murdered. So this is what the Romans were. Now let's unpause. When we pause before, going back to our story by Hyrcanus and Astabolus. These are the two of the people that came from the Hashemunayim dynasty. And they didn't know who was going to be the ruler. They weren't sure who was going to be the one that's ruler. So they went and they invited these Roman people. They invited these brutal murderers into like, why don't you come into the land? Come into Judea. Come into Israel. Please help us out. They invited them. So what did the Roman general, they were thinking? The Romans, they were very into conquering the entire world. They saw that let's us go and let us appoint Hyrcanus as what? As a puppet ruler. He was ruler sort of by proxy. The local governor, even though the, the, what was the, the way that the Romans, got, the, the Romans went and they conquered the world, how did they rule the world? They appointed local governors. And when they appointed these local governors, these local governors made the day to, they dealt with the day-to-day issues, day-to-day problems. But the Romans had to be paid their tax and they had to follow the Roman laws. And really they were sort of like puppets for the Roman government behind them. So... The Pompey, the Roman uh, you know, general, he saw that Hyrcanus would be the perfect match to be able to facilitate, facilitate to overtake Judea, Israel at that time, and he appointed Hyrcanus. However, after he appointed Hyrcanus, there were people that were very faithful to Aristobulus, and they refused to accept Pompey's decision. And says, no, we're not. And fighting broke out in Jerusalem. Fighting broke out in Yerushalayim. And in the year 63 BCE, Pompey's troops, the Roman troops, they came into the holy city and they put down the rebellion, killing many, many people, many Jews. And Astabolus from the Hashemunayim dynasty, he went and he was taken prisoner. And anybody, any of the revolutionaries that were came and were involved, they were executed, they were killed. At this point in time, now that they allowed Pompey, they allowed the Roman government to come into the eternal affairs of the Jewish thing, they inadvertently, at this point in time in history, they had given Judea, they had given Israel into the hands of Roman Empire because they invited them over. And very unfortunate that, you know, at this point in time, the state of Israel ceased to exist like it exists before. There was no more the independent state of Israel. The Romans now had a very, very strong hand over Judea. Pompey, when he went, he split up the land. <clears throat> he ended up giving, because he went and he, he quelled the rebellion, he, he shut down the rebellion, and now his officers, his, his army was there, he gave large chunks to his soldiers as of their reward in battle. And he gave Hyrcanus, the, you know, one of the son of Shlomotzian, he went and he gave, he gave, their, he gave his son Hyrcanus, he gave Jerusalem and a few pieces in north and south in the area. To govern. And even though he governed it, he didn't really fully govern it. He sort of was under the rule of the Roman Empire at this point in time. 
How, you know, and it's interesting, the, the Jewish people at this time, they accepted it. The religious people, they accepted this time. It caused economic hardship because they had a very large tax to pay. But the Jewish people, they did not defy you know, Rome. They accepted their lot quietly and they continued, as long as they were able to continue you know, serving the Bet HaMikdash, doing, serving God, they you know, accepted this, uh, this situation. Meanwhile, Antipater, which was the real strength behind Hyrcanus, he was slowly, slowly positioning his own family into power. And, you know, a few years go by, and in Rome, in the year 49 BCE, there was a civil war that war broke out in Rome. And that was, you know, the Roman general, famous Roman general, Julius Caesar. I don't think it's, I don't think it's named after the Caesar salad, uh, but maybe it is. But Julius Caesar, at this point in time, this was the famous, famous Caesar at this time, and he, this Roman general, he was a general at the time, he, he was going versus Pompey. So remember, Pompey was the one who gave Hyrcanus the rule of the empire. But now there was a civil war going on. And who was going to be the next leader? It was either going to be Julius Caesar or Pompey. So Antipater, which was the advisor of Hyrcanus, convinced Hyrcanus to go and cast their lot with Julius Caesar. Even though that Hyrcanus was an ally of Pompey. After all, Pompey was the one who gave him the power to rule over Judea. But Antipater went and convinced him, and he says, no, you have to switch sides right now, because Julius Caesar is going to win. Unfortunately, those who are familiar with politics know that politics is not about loyalty. It's all about who is going to be the winner. It's like, imagine you're watching a sports game. Chas Shalom. You know, you should never, whatever. But imagine you're watching a sports game. So, who are you, if you're not you know, a fan of one team, who are you a fan of? Whoever's winning, that's who usually you're a fan of. So how do politics work? You're just a fan of whoever is winning. I don't want to get involved in the Israeli politics that is going on nowadays, but whoever is involved, whoever knows anything about anything that's going on in Israel nowadays knows exactly what I'm talking about, that people go with whoever is winning, and they, they change whatever politics of the... anything that they promised or whatever they said, you know, previously. So, Antipater and, and Hyrcanus went and said, listen, Julius Caesar is going to win. He's the one who has... We have to side with him. So they went, and Hyrcanus withdrew from being the backing Pompey, and he and he backed Julius, um, Ju, you know Julius Caesar, and and in fact he even you know helped him in in a certain sense with sending people to go and, and fight with that you know fight for Julius Caesar, and in the end Antipater and Hyrcanus were right, Julius Caesar did win, and now they realize okay now they have a favor in the bank if they ever need they have this imperial favor from the emperor if they ever need it, and. Um, at this point in time, you know, the, the, the Caesar, he went and they were, you know, trying to figure out who was going to rule over the Jewish people. Talking about, you know, fast forwarding a few years. And somehow, somehow, the, you know, this Antipater, he was able to go and push himself to the front lines. I can't say of something that's comparable nowadays, of what's going on nowadays in Israel, because I really can't say that. So I won't say that. But, Antipater went and he pushed himself forward. And the Roman government realized that they had this Antipater. This Antipater was a forcibly, you know, this wasn't really a Jewish. He was forced to convert to Judaism. But he wasn't really Jewish at heart. And they were thinking like, who are we going to go and and put a leader of, of the Jewish state? And they decided that instead of putting Hyrcanus, 
who was previously a Jewish leader, they're going to they're gonna go and they're going to put Antipater, who was not really fully Jewish, not really Jewish, and they figured they will, he would be better for, better for Rome. Better for the motherland is to put this person in charge. So they went and they put this Antipater in charge. Hyrcanus, they still gave him the title of Nasi, they still gave him the title, title of Kohen Gadol, but as king, Antipater sort of, in his aggressive behavior, he was able to go and up the, get up the head, and now he was the ruler of the Judea at this point in time. And really, the Romans, they, they figured this out correctly, because he did not really identify with Jewish values. And he ended up treating the land of Israel if it was his own private property. He ended up appointing his older son as governor in the Jerusalem area. And his younger son, by the name of Herod, he ended up appointing as the governor of the Galilee, that's in the north. Herod, which anybody who's familiar with anything with Jewish history knows about Herod, he, uh, when he was in the, we'll speak a lot about Herod, but when he was in the, um, the governor of the north, he thought, felt that there's going to be some sort of revolt against him. So he quickly went and preemptively went and he arrested a large group of people that he thought that were going to go and revolt against him. And he went and he executed a large number of people without any trial. And he, didn't, he went and he killed a lot of people. Now when people heard about this, when the Jewish people, they were shocked. They were like, what? You have a lead over here? They went and captured a bunch of people for out of like whatever reason in his mind, and he went and he killed them? So they decided they wanted to put Harold on trial. His father, the king, Antipater, he told Harold, he says, run away. Let this run away Go vacation somewhere, go to the Emirates, go somewhere, go to Dubai, go vacation somewhere far away. Well, that wasn't so far away. Go vacation somewhere until this blows off. But Herod, that wasn't his personality. His personality was to fight everything with brutal for- force. You coming against me? I'll show you what it is. So they went and they, they had a court case. And he came to the court case. But he came you know, dressed in royalty. And he came with a huge army behind him. And people know this guy, Herod, wasn't so, you know, his screws weren't so, so tightly wound, if we could say that. And when the, when the judges saw his army, they sort of, uh, you know, they're like, you know what? We're going we're gonna to back out from this, uh, from this court case. Yeah, why don't you find somebody? You know, they sort of backed out. But Shammai, great sage, the great sage Shammai at the time, he went and he rallied the court and says, no, we have to go and we have to judge this case. And they went and they judged the case and they found him guilty of murder. And not only that, they, they, the, his punishment what should have been execution, death. But at this point in time, Hyrcanus, he could not allow the death of his friend, of his friend's son. His friend, you know, son, he was a Nasi at this point, point in time. So he manipulated, he arranged for it that Herod would go and, ex, and escape before his execution. And he went, Herod went and he escaped to Damascus. And somehow... You know, it's it, it, you know when you read the the you know the history on it, it doesn't say. At least when I was reading, it, it didn't say how it happened. But somehow, very quickly, Herod became um, sort of a general in the Roman government in the south of Lebanon when he escaped. You know, the Israel, the you know where he was in the Galil and the you know up north. Somehow he like sort of switched right away, and he he got into high power and he wanted vengeance. Right now, the people wanted to kill me. He had this, he was a little bit of a psychopath. He says, he wanted to go and go in vengeance. But his father went and he convinced him to like hold back. Years go by, 
And his father, Antipater, went and he was fatally poisoned by his enemies. And at this point in time, Herod went and he bribed, bullied, fought somehow his way to become the king over Judea. And in fact, if you take a little bit of a sideline in this, in the history of what happened in Rome during this time, that during this time in the year 44 BCE, Julius Caesar was murdered. He was murdered by Brutus and Cassius. And then they, when you read history of the ancient times, you're like, everybody was murdered by somebody else. Everybody, it was like such a time in history that's like, you know, it's like, it's shocking to think about it. But like one group murders another group. Nowadays we're used to it when it's murdered by Lashonara. When it's murdered, one group is murdering the other group. But back then they physically murdered them. Maybe that's what we're holding in the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash. We don't have milk. We have this Lashonara. We have this Sinat Chinam, unfortunately. But going back to the story at hand over here, Julius Caesar went and he was murdered by Brutus and Cassius. And then they were go and they were defeated by two people called Anthony and Octavian. And Octavian ended up emerging as a victor because Anthony and Octavian, they were thinking who's going to be the next emperor. I'm going fast through this like Roman history because it's irrelevant. But Octavian and, and Anthony were working on who's going to be the next Octavian emerged the victor. And he later changed his name to Augustus, which was a Roman emperor. If anybody's familiar with Roman uh, you know, history, he was, he was Augustus. So Herod, very interesting, he was originally, he sided with Anthony. But he switched alliances, like he, like his, you know, his ancestors. He switched a lot last minute, and he backed Octavian. And because of that, because he backed Octavian, that earned him that when Octavian, who later became Augustus, he became and he confirmed that that Herod really will be the continuation of the king of Israel. So he sort of like he backed the right person, and he ended up becoming the prime minister. I mean, the king of Israel. Uh, that was a joke for whoever knows about the. Okay, whatever. Okay. So now. Herod, let's speak about Herod. <coughs> Herod was known as Herod the Great. <coughs> and how, why was he, he called himself Herod the Great. So, you know, when somebody goes and calls himself like, you know, I'm the Great, uh, something interesting that's going on. But anyways, Herod the Great, Herod was actually one of the most famous kings in, in Jewish history. Herod was very ambish, ambitious, uh, but at the same point in time, he was very cruel and very, very paranoid. Uh, he was a brutal murderer, to say at least, and he would employ any power, any force that he deemed necessary to reach his his uh, lust for power and wealth. Herod, at this point in time, just to give us a little bit of a of a understanding where we're holding, this is right now about 103 years before the destruction of the second Beth Amikdash. And Herod's rule lasted for 32 years. The, the Jewish people endured tremendous amount of hardship during this uh, you know this rulership but they did not dare to cry out because they were fe- they, they were fearful of this of his ruthless retaliation that he would have to the point that Herod went and he executed most of Sanhedrin a big part of the Sanhedrin he went he was a Jewish ruler he was a Jewish king uh, again he was forced to be king from, from, a, from a lineage of forcible converts question if he was a Jewish or not he was a slave there's a whole uh, you know like question on his lineage but he was the ruler of Judea. And what happened? He, he killed a big chunk of the Sanhedrin. One of those, by the way, that he left was actually Shammai. Shammai he didn't kill. And during this time of Herod's uh, rulership, the Romans sort of took a back seat. And, sort of like, and it's very, very interesting because the Jews were granted exemption from the Roman you know, state religion. 
And it, it's, it's mind-boggling to think about it, because back in those days, the religion and state, it wasn't a separation of religion and state, it was together. Empires in the ancient world followed whatever religion they followed. If they conquered a land, you're following that religion. But Rome, for whatever reason, they went and they conquered, they were able to, to a certain extent, they took over Israel, they didn't, they didn't force their, uh, their religion on them. And what makes it even a greater, you know, you know like, like miracle was, if you could say it like that, is that Rome practiced emperor worship, meaning that the Romans made their gods, their emperors, after the death, into gods. They became gods. So meaning that they would want to force everybody else to go and worship them. You know, talk about honor. How much of a level of honor can you have when someone's literally worshiping you? But at the same point in time, the Romans, they were pragmatists. They learned from the Greek experience. They learned from the Greek history that the Jews cannot be forced to worship idols. So they decided that they're going to grant the Jews sort of to be exempt from the Roman state religion. But anything in life, we know, doesn't come for free. And they said, listen, you want to be exempt? you got to pay this tax, specifically for the Jews, this fiscus judaeus, this, fi- this specific tax, specifically, you want it for this privilege? You're going to pay for it. And the Jews had to pay a big tax, that way they're able to go and practice their own religion. However, at this point in time, even though their, their religion wasn't forced upon Judea at this point in time, Herod, he went and he introduced, he brought in customs and practices from the Roman Empire. And his long rule, he, he planted the seeds that would ultimately lead to the destruction of the holy Beta Mikdash. Herod, Herod also had this obsession with elaborate construction projects. He was, you know, a massive, massive builder, and he had this, this obsession with building these huge, huge edifices. And in fact, if you go and you ever toured Israel, you for sure have seen some of Herod's work. And before we get to some of Herod's work that exists nowadays, the, um, you have to think about how is he going to get the money to finance such, such big projects, huge, huge projects he made. So he was able to go and, and include, to put into Judea, there was several major trade routes that he made that go through Judea. And also Israel, Judea at this point in time, they were, they, agriculturally speaking, they produced tremendous amount of very, very lucrative you know, products. There was olive oil, which not only was used for cooking, but was also the main source of light during the time. And then Judea also produced dates. Dates was the sweetener. This is the times before sugar. So they had sweetener. And also Judea also produced wine. So Herod had tremendous amount of profits. And he used these profits in addition to the crushing taxes that he placed upon the Jewish people to go and build these huge, huge you know, the, these real estate projects, these, these uh, construction projects that he did. And anybody that's, an art, you know, the, um, any, any of the archaeologists or, uh, the, you know, or even, I don't know if I could say the, you know, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if, it, I, I don't know to extent. But anyways, all the archaeologists, they went and they appreciated uh, that, that Herod was one of the greatest builders of all of human history. In all of human history, he stands out as one of the greatest builders. He built cities, palaces, and fortresses, and to the extent that this is where you're talking about over 2,000 years ago, and it still stands today. On the coast of Israel, one of the coasts of Israel, he went and he built a city. And it took 12 years to complete. 
and he invited the Caesar, by the name of Augustus the Caesar, which was Octavian at this point in time, to go and uh, to you know in this inaugural I guess event at at you know opening up of the city, and he named this city none other than Caesarea. He named it Caesarea. If anybody knows about it, Israel, there's a there's a city there's a city called Caesarea. He went and he built this. He put huge buildings. He put theaters. He put pagan temples. Unfortunately, at this point in time, most of the inhabitants of Caesarea was non-Jews. And he also built a very very large structure on the Marat Machpelah, the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron. There was also he also put massive fort, fortifications around Jerusalem, around Jerusalem. There are you know the, there were three towers around the entrance of the city. You know the the remains which are mistakenly named the Tower of David nowadays. They were built by Herod. And one of his more famous ones. This has already been to Israel. They you know you go to Israel usually you tour some place called Masada. Masada is near the Dead Sea. That was built by none other than Herod. He was the one who built it. And it was it was a, a the Masada. If you ever been, it's, it's on this like mountain. It's on this huge mountain. There's no even road to get up there. You either you either have to walk it up this like very very difficult height, or you take this cable car all the way up. And in this, the the, the views from this site is is unbelievable because you see there's like nothing around it. And he, architecturally speaking, he went and he made this incredible water supply. He had a system that fed the gardens for growing agriculture. There was bathhouses. There were it was unbelievable the the architectural feats that he that he was able to accomplish. But his most ambitious projects was the rebuilding of the temple, the Beit Hamikdash. It, he took 10,000 men, and it took 10 years, 10,000 men, 10 years, to, and, and, he, and he went and he just rebuilt the, the retaining walls around Temple Mount. Now, you think about it, why did he re, sort of rebuild the temple? This is a time where the temp, temple was still standing, the Beit HaMikdash was still stand, standing. And in fact, the Beit HaMikdash was built about 320 years earlier by the people that returned from the Babylonian exile from the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash. But even when this was built 320 years earlier, it was not as an imposing a building. It wasn't as an as a magnificent building as it was by, by Shlomo Amalekh. And even during these 320 years, it was been looted, damaged by, Mer- by many of the foreigners, by many of the Hellenists, that it ended up falling into the spirit force of the temple. So Herod went and he rebuilt the temple. Now the question that you can ask is why would Herod, which technically was a non-Jew for, you know, for argument's sake, and he hated what the temple stood for. He hated what the Beit HaMikdash... Why would he want to rebuild it? So the Gemara on Baba Basra goes and tells us why. The Gemara on Baba Basra, page 3b to 4a, goes and tells us that Herod had learned that the Torah requires that a Jewish king may be the only person that would be a Jewish king. Meaning that if you want to be a Jewish king, you have to be Jewish. It says in the Pasuk in Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 15, it says, Mikere v'achacha, you have to be Jewish. But being that Herod was not from a Jewish lineage, he is not probable. He's not. He's not. Uh, you know, right? He's not fit to be a king. So this disqualified him from his monarchy. So he goes and he says, "Who taught this?" And he heard that the sages, the Chachamim, taught this. So he ordered that the Chachamim, the sages, be killed. He left sages. One of the sages that he left was Baba Ben Buta. He went and he left him. And Herod, he put a crown. Don't ask me why, but he put a crown of sharpened porcupine skin around his eyes. 
And very unfortunate, the porcupine skins ended, ended up blinding this Bava Ben Buta. And one day, Harold goes over to Baba Ben Buta. He went and he pretended to be an ordinary citizen. He sat down next to this sage, this Chacham. And he goes over to this Chacham, the sage, and he says, Rabbi, he says, do you realize... He's pretending that he's not who he is. He says, do you realize the terrible things that there's no good slave Herod is doing? Herod is going and he's in, pretending to be a, a regular, you know, you know, nobody. And he goes over to this rabbi, this blind rabbi, and he says, Rabbi, do you realize the terrible things that there's no good slave Herod is doing? So what did the rabbi reply? The rabbi replied, what should I do? So Herod goes under disguise and he goes, I want you to curse him. So the rabbi replied, how can I curse him? It says in Kohelet, chapter 10, it says in Kohelet, so hard to pronounce this name, Kohelet, it says in Kohelet, chapter 10, verse 20. It says, even in your thoughts, Melech al Tikalel, do not, you shall not curse a king. So he goes over to the Herod and he says, but it says in the Pasuk in Kohelet that we're not allowed to curse a king and he's the king. So Herod goes and responds back, he says, Herod, he's not a king. He's not, he's nobody. So what? So the Baba Bermuda goes and says, but what does Pasuk go on? The Pasuk in Kohelet goes on and it says, In your bedrooms, you should not curse a wealthy man. Herod is a wealthy man. He says, I cannot curse a wealthy man. And even more so, says, says the sage Baba Bermuda, goes and it says in the Pasuk in Exodus, in Shemot chapter 22, verse 27, it says that you should not curse a leader of your people. And he's a leader of the people. All of a sudden, when Herod hears of this blind sage speaking, he refuses to curse Herod, who causes so much problems to him, then Herod goes and confesses, says Gemara. And he says, I am Herod. And Herod goes and he says, that had I known that the rabbis were so careful with their words, I would have not have killed them. I would have not have destroyed them. So please, he goes over to the rabbi, he says, please, tell me what I can do that I can rectify, I can do to Chuvav what I have done. So Vababa Ben Buddha goes and he says, and he says, since you took out, you snuffed out the light of the world, you took out the sages of the world who are involved in light, now you have to go and involve yourself into increasing the light. And what's increasing light? Increasing the Beta Mikdash. So because of that, Howard went and he undertook his renovations as an atonement for the rabbis that he killed, he renovated the Beta Mikdash. And the Gemara Bavbata goes and says, that anybody who has not seen the new temple that Herod built has never seen a magnificent building. He built it like unparalleled, like crazy. He built it to the highest level. I'm talking about Romans, who we said were a high-level builders, archaeological, you know, speaking one of the great. Herod went and he put the, the Bet Dash to the highest standard. He went to the Bet the, the Kodesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies, were covered in gold. The walls and columns that were there were this might marble. They had, the floors were this like blue tinge type of marbles. It sort of had an impression of, of, of a moving seawater. Josephus goes and describes of how incredible this looked. The Bet Hamikdash had everything, says Josephus, that could amaze either the mind or the eye. It says if somebody went and looked at it, the the plates of gold. When you look at the gold, when the first rays of sun hit the gold, it looked as if you were steering straight at the suns, and you had to look away. You couldn't steer at it. If you look at it from far, the, it looked like mountains that were covered with snow. The, the 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 amount of of wisdom and archaeological, you know, the architectural, you know, wisdom that he put to this was unparalleled. But. 
at the end, at the completion of the building, of the rebuilding, of the, of the rehabbing this, this Bet HaMikdash, Herod went and he offended the people greatly. And what he did was he put at the entrance a huge Roman eagle. And when the Torah students saw this, they went and said, this is what you put on this, it's sacrilegious. They went and they grabbed and they smashed it. And Herod went and had them hunted down. And he had these people that went and smashed his eagle crest that he put over there, he had them burnt alive. And he decided that now he, Herod wants to go and make sure that he doesn't run into any future problems. So he decided that now he is going to be the one to appoint the future Kohen Gadol, the future high priest. Herod, at this time, knew that to tell you what type of person that he was, he knew his credentials, his Jewish credential, credentials was, uh, you know, suspicious. So he ended up marrying a woman by the name of Miriam. She was a granddaughter of Hyrcanus, and therefore she came from the Hashmanaim lineage. She was come from the Hashmanaim, uh, you know, princess. And he really fell madly in love with her. But Miriam, his wife, hated him. Why? He hated him as much as he loved her. Why? Because of what he did to her brother Astabolus. She had a she had a brother Astabolus, who not the same Astabolus, a different Astabolus. She had a brother Astabolus who he appointed the high priest. He appointed the Kohen Gadol at the young age of seventeen. But this Astabolus, he became very very popular. After all, he was a genuine Jew. He was a genuine Kohen, and he was the Kohen Gadol. So he became very popular. And Herod, who was very very like. Uh, you know, paranoid, he was getting nervous of why his, you know, why his, this brother-in-law is getting so much power. So he went and he had him killed. He had him drowned. And this is the way that Herod thought. Later to the point that he was so paranoid that Herod, he became jealous of his own children, his own sons. And he had them murdered as well. And later he, he had his, even his wife murdered because he, in a fit of jealousy that he had on her. And even though that, you know, go, I'm not going to go too much into this, but he, this, this aspect actually reminds me of Ahasuerus killing Vashti, where after he calmed down, after he killed his wife, he couldn't think that she was dead. And in his mental disorders, he sort of kept on speaking to her as if she was alive. Meaning to say that Herod, he was not a stable man. He was not a stable man, and this is, he ruled for over 30 years in the Jewish state. And during this time, this physical hardship over the Jewish, you know, Judea at this point in time, there was also spiritual conflict that was going on. Hellenism at this point in time dominated the Judea, dominated the Israel, dominated the Jewish people. A significant number of Greeks as well as other Gentiles who adopted the Greek, you know, lifestyle, they lived in the land of Israel. They lived over here. And you had the Jewish people became more Hellenistic, more like the Greeks. The Greeks came and also moved in over here. And it sort of infiltrated the society. The, uh, you know, in addition to that, the Jewish upper class were also Hellenists. They, they, uh, attributed, they, they ascribed to this, this type of ideology. Of course, Herod was the king. He was also a Hellenist. He, was a, he thought of himself as a very enlightened leader. And he wanted to bring his backward people to more into this modern world. So he went and... Along these lines, he murdered anybody that sort of prevented him from bringing the modernization to, this, to the Jewish land. So he went and he killed a lot of the rabbis, who are threats not only to this ideology, but also to his authority. And any obstacle to his masses of Hellenization, he went and he, and he abolished it. So he tried to go and put a lot of modernization into the Jewish land. He put it to take away a lot of the Jews that, that followed the Torah. He started to try to take them away from that. And... As a result of Herod's interference, there was a 
very, very large spreading of this Hellenistic, you know, interference and influence into the Jewish, uh, into the Jewish land. And this ended up going into the temple hierarchy, and it became very, very corrupt. The tzedukim, this, you know, group that only believed in the written law, not in the oral law, they were a very wealthy group, they now went and they ended up controlling the temple. And the Jewish people sort of were, you know, not, and not all of them, but there was a large part that were sort of straying away from the correct path. This is where the pot was beginning to boil. The pot of the destruction of the second Bet Amidash was beginning to boil, and unfortunately soon it's going to erupt in the destruction of the second Bet Amidash. With that, we'll stop for this, and we'll open up for any questions, and with that, you know, we'll continue with the story of Hashem next week. You've just experienced another Torah class, brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.